The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Thank you. Be seated and please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And we're looking at verses 22 through 24. Everybody had a good Thanksgiving? Turn the corner, ready for Christmas time. And no, not ready at all. It's like 90 degrees outside, but that's all right. That's Christmas in Shreveport. I want to read to you a few quotes. This is coming from the book, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. I highly recommend this book. It's available in the bookstore. Anything out there we sell at cost. We don't, we don't make a dime off of it, but we try to make special books that we think are helpful, available to you. So I encourage you to get this book out there. We've ordered like 24 of them, so uh, there should be plenty for you. But listen to these quotes of, uh, that are on the topic of what Jesus is teaching says, the average American shops six hours a week while spending 40 minutes playing with his children. Thought I'd drop that on you on Christmas. Sorry. By age 20, we've seen one million commercials. Recently, more Americans declared bankruptcy than graduated from college. In 90% of divorce cases, arguments about money played a prominent role. Listen to what some of the wealthiest people of their day said. These are quotes from people you'll recognize. From W.H. Vanderbilt. The care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor said, I am the most miserable man on earth. John D. Rockefeller said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Andrew Carnegie said, millionaires seldom smile. Henry Ford said, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. These are all real quotes from real people who had A lot of money. And that's where the topic Jesus is today. Jesus was there last week. He was there this week. Jesus is hitting us literally in the pocketbook. Jesus has been saying over and over, listen, following me is not about giving me some lip service on Sundays. Following me affects everything. He says, I want all of you if you're going to follow me. Because that's what Jesus has been doing. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. We've called it Sent by the Son, Five Discourses in Matthew. What we're studying is the Sermon on the Mount is the first discourse in Matthew. It's where Jesus has called men and women out of their lives and said, follow me. We see a a snapshot of a couple of those people's lives. Jesus called fishermen. They were enjoying their family business and fishing business, was very successful, doing their thing. Jesus touched their life, said, follow me. They sold out, walked away from it all, and started following Jesus. Then there's the tax collector, Matthew, who wrote this gospel. Matthew was a tax collector, getting rich off the backs of his Jewish brothers, collecting taxes for the government, the Roman government, and skimming a lot off of them for himself to get rich off of their backs. Jesus called him, forgave him, showed him mercy and grace, and he walked away from it all. In fact, he radically gave it all back and said, when God changed his heart, God affected his wallet. And that's what Jesus has been saying all along. If I've got your heart, I've got your wallet. If you want to know if Jesus has your heart, look at your wallet. Look at your credit card statement. Look at your bank statement. And if you see it, you will see evidence 
of the impact of Christ in your life in those places. Jesus is all about the heart. Jesus doesn't just want his followers to be this outward appearance. He doesn't want just rote religion. A couple of weeks ago, he said, listen, you, you fast, you give, you pray. He says, but you don't do that for others to see. You do that because I've captivated your heart. You do it for God and God alone. And he's been working on the heart week after week. Jesus is calling us. It's like we are at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking to us off the pages of Scripture. We're gathered around his feet and we're learning what it means to be disciples of Jesus. In our language, we call it being Christians. The Bible uses the term more often being disciples. Disciple means to be a student of a teacher. And so we, as Jesus' followers, his disciples, as Christians, are to learn what does Jesus say it really means to follow him. And what we've been seeing in the last week and this week is it means that it affects our spending habits. If you want to be politically correct, don't preach through the Sermon on the Mount. We've hit lust, we've hit anger, and now we're hitting the wallet. You just don't get to escape anything that's challenging in this text. But today we look at Matthew 6, verses 22 through 24. It picks up where Jesus left last week. Jesus spoke last week about treasures. He used a metaphor of two treasures. He said, don't store treasures for yourself on earth where they don't last and they don't satisfy. He says, but store treasures in heaven where they do last and they do satisfy eternally. And we learned what that meant. We learned that that meant that we're not to fall in love with money. We're not to cherish and treasure money and possessions and wealth because that leads to selfish hoarding. Instead, we are to fall in love and cherish the things of God, the purposes of God, the will of God, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Remember, he's teaching his disciples as he prepares them to send them out. The final verse in Matthew is the Great Commission where he sends them out. Having gone through these discourses, teaching them, he then sends them out. And it says, therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I have taught you. Teach them to obey. The literal translation of that is, as you are going about your life, make disciples disciples. And so he's preparing us to make disciples and he's going to send us out. And he says, now, in order for you to do that, you can't be selfishly hoarding possessions because it is costly business to make disciples. You have to fund the disciple-making church. You have to be willing to invest in missionaries. You have to be willing to spend the money it takes to send missionaries around the world. We have a team right now in South Sudan, Africa, literally the other side of the globe. That costs a lot of money. Not to mention on those people's lives, people in our church go, dozens of people go. They take their vacation time. They take enormous amount of of sacrifices, their own money to invest in going on that trip. And then the church supplements over $1,000 for each person to be able to afford to go. It takes money to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Jesus says, don't 
treasure the things of this world. Instead, treasure the gospel and you will then spend your treasures for the gospel. Two metaphors. First, he said last week the the metaphor of treasures today. He has two more metaphors on the same subject. He says the eye And then we're going to see the master. Two eyes and two masters today. He says in Matthew 6, 22, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot... Serve God and money. Heavenly Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you will minister to our hearts today. We pray that you will make clear that this is the word of God and not the word of a greedy pastor. We pray that we will obey your word and seek to honor you with our lives. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's look at each of these two metaphors, and then I'm going to let you hear from another person who has lived this out in their life. So the first metaphor of two eyes. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. So what is he saying here? It's a metaphor, once again, for the eye being the lamp of the body. And a lamp back in those days was probably a candle standing on a stand. And if the candle was shining bright, the wick had been trimmed, the wax cut away from it, and the light was nice and bright. If the room was dark, when that light was lit, it lit the whole room. And so one little light, one little lamp affected the entire room. If the lamp was not If the wick was not trimmed and it was not a good light, then the light in the room would be dim and dark. It would be affected. And so Jesus is using this as a metaphor to say, the eye has a drastic impact on the rest of your life. He says, if your eye is healthy, it'll impact every part of your life. But if the eye is not healthy, it will also have a negative impact on every part of your life. So what is the eye? I did a study in the scriptures of using the eye, the word eye, and one common refrain that came up is the eye is often used in conjunction with the heart. The eye and the heart. For example, Jeremiah the prophet was condemning the king of Israel for his wickedness, and as he condemned him, this is what he said. He said, but you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain. You have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain. So there you see the, the, it's synonymous. The eyes and the heart representing the intentions, the motivations, the, the intent of this person is described as eyes and heart. In his case, they were for dishonest gaining. He was being condemned by the Lord. Proverbs 21, 4 is a great uh, verse because it seems to be very similar to what Jesus is saying. In Proverbs 21, 4, we read this. Haughty eyes and a proud heart. The lamp of the wicked are sin. So here we see eyes and heart used together. Haughty eyes and heart are described as the lamp of the wicked person. And it is said to be sin. So the wicked person's life is filled with sin sin because their heart and their eyes are haughty 
and prideful. And so we start to get a feel for what Jesus is saying when he says the eye is the lamp of your life. If the eye is unhealthy, it's all going to be affected. If the eye is healthy, then your life will be filled with light. How your eyes of your heart, the condition of your eyes of your heart, the spiritual condition of your heart is going to show up in every area of your life. Now, what does it mean to have a healthy eye then? Jesus says we must have a healthy eye. D.A. Carson explains that the original word translated here as healthy literally means singleness of purpose. So he says that Jesus is saying that the eye should have a heart that is, that is focused, to use another eye phrase, that we should have a singleness of purpose, that our heart's eye should be focused on one thing. And that with a focused heart, an eye that is focused on the light will show up in every area of your light. And light in the scriptures is always holiness, purity, the moral goodness of Jesus. Jesus himself is said to be the light. We sing a song saying he is the light of the world. So what Jesus is saying is if your heart is focused on Jesus and his light and his gospel and his glory and the advancement of that gospel, it will show up in every area of your life. It will be very clear in your life what you're focusing on. Jesus says, focus on Jesus. Focus on his gospel. Focus on his glory. Focus on his mission to advance the gospel. Remember, he's telling these people that he is about to send them out to go and spend their lives making disciples of all nations that led to you sitting in this chair today because they obeyed. So Jesus is saying, is your eye, is your heart focused with singleness of purpose on the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ? What has captured your focus? When Dana and I first got married, we were focused intently on getting our CPA. Now, I just kind of just stumbled and bumbled following her. She's supposed to be a CPA. I am not supposed to be a CPA. I am as contrary to the CPA personality as you can find. I am not going to do good in that situation. However, I was found myself in a job that says, if you're going to work here, you're going to get your CPA. So we became intently focused, both of us working in the accounting world, working for big eight firms. And they said, you're going to get your CPA. So what did we do? We became focused on getting that CPA with a laser focus. It affected our time. We stayed up after working 60 hour weeks. She would come home from her place. They had her in Monroe. I was in Shreveport. We'd, we were newlyweds and we'd come home and we would, after 60 hour weeks, we'd stay up all night studying till two and three in the morning doing hundreds 
thousands of questions from the CPA exam, test question after test question. It affected our budget. I mean, we were just trying to scrape nickels together at that stage in our life. And here we are spending lots of money on prep courses, on books, on computer software to to increase our ability to to hopefully pass this stupid exam. Excuse me. Uh, I I mean, it was just like a nightmare. And it was affecting everything. It affects when you're focused on something like that. It affects on whether you're going to have kids or not. I mean, it's, it's that drastic of a priority that I am going to not let anything get in the way. Time, money, priorities, relationships. I mean, it was all-consuming focus on getting that wonderful three letters. When you are focused on something, it shows up in your priorities in your wallet, in your calendar. It shows up in your relationships. It shows up all throughout your life. What are you focused on? I scan the room and I know your lives, most of you. You're focused on raising your kids, aren't you? You're focused on climbing the, the business corporate ladder. You're focused on one business becoming two businesses in multiple locations. You're focused on providing for your family. You're focused on establishing your career. You're focused on establishing your retirement. You're focused on raising those kids. So, is that bad? Is that wrong? Absolutely not. God says, as you are going, make disciples. You see, what we need to see is that All of that is done in the context of making disciples. You have been sent to make disciples. So as you are raising those children, make disciples. When God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with my glory, that's his plan, is that if he blesses us with children, we raise them to be disciples. As you are building your business, you are providing jobs for your, for your workers. You are providing income for them. But it is also an opportunity for you to invest in their lives. In the way that you are their boss and in the way that you interact with them, make disciples. As a student, you're, you're all about getting that degree and graduating, but God puts people in your classrooms, in your dorm room, in your, in your life, your friends and your clubs at high school and middle school, all these things. God is putting people in your life that you are to be an excellent student, but as you do it, you are there to make disciples. Everything you do is in this context. If you say you're a disciple of Jesus, you have been sent to make disciples. So he says, if the eye is focused on making disciples, it should show up in every area of your life, including in the context of this passage last week and this week, we will see, including your wallet. And Jesus is saying, if I have your heart, it will show up in your wallet. So Jesus is hitting us in the wallet. On a related note, Jesus says, he must be our master. This gets to the, set, the last two metaphors, or last metaphor of two masters. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one 
and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's a binary choice. You cannot do it. You must choose, Jesus says to his disciples, to all of us. You must choose. Who are you going to serve? You're going to serve money or you're going to serve God? There is no in-between. There is no both and. It is either or. And when he says money, your translation may say mammon. That's a transliteration of the word mammon. According to D.A. Carson, again, the word originally meant something in which one puts confidence. He goes on to explain that since man's confidence is so often deposited, it is deposited in riches, the word came to refer to material possessions like profit, wealth, and money. So Jesus is referring to anything in which we place our confidence in other than him. What are you placing your confidence in? It's either God or something else or someone else. And Jesus says, you can't do that. You have to choose. If you're going to call yourself a disciple, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you put your confidence in and you trust and obey God and it can't be anything else. The idea behind this metaphor is a master-slave relationship. It's not an employer-employee relationship. If it's employer-employee, we say, well, I can have two or three bosses. I can work two or three jobs. But that's not what he says here. He says master-slave relationship. Now, the Bible does not condone slavery in the sense of forced slavery where people were abducted and sold like possessions into forced labor. That is an atrocity. That is sin. That is wrong. But in Israel, if someone was unable to pay off their debt, they would voluntarily sell themselves as a possession to someone in order to work off their debt. They were a possession of their master. So the idea in this metaphor of master-slave is being owned by someone. You can only be owned by one master. And God says that I purchased you with my blood. I redeemed your life from the pit of hell. I saved you from your sin. I forgave you. You are are mine. You are not your own anymore. I am your master. You are my slave. But God is a gracious slave master. God is a gracious master. He loves us. He gave death to his own son in order to give us life. And so it is a glorious thing to serve God and to call him our master and to consider ourselves servants of the great high God who gave himself for us. But you can only have one master. You can only be owned by one person or one thing. And God says, if you're my disciples, it's me. You cannot serve money and God. You cannot be owned by money and God. You cannot give your loyalty, your trust, your confidence, your hope in both money and God. Carson explains that since... Man's confidence is so often put in riches. This became the idea of the word. But then he goes on to explain that no one can serve two gods because God is the one true God. 
and to serve God partially is not to serve God at all. To give part of your allegiance or loyalty to money and part of your allegiance or loyalty to God is in itself giving all of yourself to money and none of it to God because God says, I demand exclusive loyalty. Either they serve God on Sundays or mammon on weekdays. Or God with their lips or mammon with their hearts. Or God in appearance or mammon in reality. Or God with half their being and mammon with the other half. John Stott goes on to say, So anybody who divides his allegiance between God and mammon has already given it to mammon. Since God can only be served with an entire and exclusive devotion. This is simply because he is God. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, he says. To do otherwise is idolatry. So now we can bring it all together, the metaphors. Two treasures, two eyes, two masters. Jesus' point is clear, and it's basically the same in all three metaphors. He says, my disciples will treasure me and my gospel and my gospel mission and my gospel purposes. My disciples will be focused intently with the singular focus of me and my mission of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. I will be their master and not money. Jesus makes it clear true disciples have a radical reorientation. Just completely different. Their heart changes. Not to earn anything from God, but because God has radically changed their heart. Even their view of money. So if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus... Understand that Jesus expects such radical reorientation of your heart, of your focus, of your master. So to covenant members, let me clearly carve out covenant members. Many of you here aren't covenant members. I'm not talking to you. Covenant members who join this church go through six weeks of studying the Bible and what the Bible says about church and what God expects the church to do. And they say, they sign a covenant saying, please, as a church, I need you to speak truth into my life. I need you to teach me what God says in the scriptures. And I need you to encourage me to obey. And I I know that that is the path of the greatest blessing. I know that joy comes in obedience. I don't want to be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. I don't want to be blindsided. I need people who love me and hold me accountable. That's what covenant members say. So to covenant members, I say this. I don't look at the giving records. But we as elders ask the treasurer to give us a report on the giving. And we learn that one-third of our covenant members tithe, give faithfully a proportion of their income, regularly, dependable, and they are faithful stewards of God's resources. And to that we say, praise God. 
And I know those people enjoy the blessings of that come with, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed not to be enslaved and in love with money. There's another third of our covenant members. All of our covenant members, 100% of them, are in a community group, weekly committing to be in each other's lives, encouraging one another, studying the scriptures together, living it out together. 100% of those same members are serving on a service team. 100% of them serving in the media, serving facilities, serving with the children, serving in hospitality, serving all over the place, giving their lives. 100% of you as covenant members are doing that. But the second third are giving some to the church, to the ministries, to the expansion of the gospel, to fund and support missionary work, to to fund the teaching of the scriptures, to fund training up of children, to fund reaching out into Allendale, into these neighborhoods and sharing the gospel. 100% in community, 100% serving. And then there's a final third who don't give a dime to fund the gospel ministries of this church. And I'm being specific to this church because if you're a covenant member of this church, you were called to support the ministries of this church. And as lovingly as I can say it to you, if you're a covenant member, is that is sin and you need to repent. It is not God's will for your life to be in love with money and to be enslaved to money. You cannot say he has your heart if you are not given a dime to the church that he called you. The church is God's plan for taking the kingdom to the ends of the earth. The church, Jesus said, I died for the church. Jesus called the church his bride. Jesus says, nothing will prevail against my church. Jesus gave the church ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper. Jesus established the church. The church, the local church, was God's idea. When Jesus commissioned these apostles and sent them out, they went out with the gospel and ecclesia, the word for church, means the called out ones, those who heard the gospel, then gathered together, praising God for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and for the forgiveness of sins. And they began to meet together, study the apostles' teaching, sharing meals together, praying together, and filled with joy. And the Lord added to their number daily, as we read in Acts. And then Paul then explained, now appoint elders among you to shepherd that local church, that flock. Jesus is all about the church. If Jesus saved you and sent you, you must be about the local church. And if you say, well, what about these other great organizations? That's great. That's a false dichotomy. That's a false choice. The only reason why you ask, should I give to the church or should I give to that, is because you have fallen in love with money. Give to both. But Jesus is about the church. Now, all Christians, all who are disciples, I'll be a little less hard on you. It is not sin if you don't give to this church. But it is sin if you call yourself a disciple and you don't give to a church. God says, if I've got you, I've got your wallet. If you're a guest here, you don't consider this your church home, you're not faithfully attending here, then just know we want one thing from you in the offering plate, and that's a guest card. 
So this is God's good will for your life. If this is a source of angst, then just know that it is just waiting for you to break free from the enslavement to money and possessions. God's will for your life is the good and perfect path of happiness and joy in your life. Now, I want you to hear today from Ray Norred. Ray, where are you? Come see me, Ray. I know where you are. I know where you sit. Ray's story is a story of when God got Ray's life, God got Ray's wallet, and other things. Ray is a trip. Come up here, Ray. Ray called the cops on me one time. Do y'all remember that story? I was messing with my boat stereo in the storage place, and he lives in an apartment on the grounds, and he heard the noise and called the cops on me. I was like, for real? He's like, I didn't know it was you, Pastor. I'm sorry. That's a story for another day. So Ray is a good dude. Ray has been to church all his life, and then something changed, and I want you to just tell your history a little bit. What happened when you got here? What about your giving pattern? What happened, and what has it been like since you've started doing that? Okay, first off, um, uh, about the police, I was going to bring that up first, but you beat me to it. So. <laughs> Two meetings in a row here this morning. But I, I I've got to beat you too. Anytime <laughs> someone calls the cops on me, I'm bringing it up first. Yeah, I'm well, get you to hold that a little closer. There you right, go. How's that? Perfect. Right. Uh, fortunately, I was raised in a Christian home. My mom and dad were Christians, and I can remember back in the late '50s when I was growing up, uh, they'd be listening to the radio and discussing the sermon and debating it. And uh, they did a lot of debate on what they had in the Bible. They were good people. And, of course, I grew up in church and went to a lot of different churches in my life. And, uh, you know, and, of course, I'm, I'm in and out at a certain point. You know, I had my grew up and got my career and traveled and transferred around a lot. So uh, I, I wound up uh, here at Norris Ferry Church at, at some point. And, by the way, I was um, – uh, we had our meetings with Bob Knight and Marshall Graham and Leon McKee. They were uh, – I remember those. Had a Bible study. And there were several less praying for you during those meetings. You probably didn't know that. Uh, yeah, I, I figured they probably would. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, uh, that's what we're supposed to do. That's right. That's right. And, and uh, you know, there, there's a lot of responsibilities. And, and so I started attending church here uh, through the discipling that we did. And that lasted about a year to a year and a half every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. And I uh, didn't miss very many meetings. But anyway, I got interested and came to the church. And and what, what I feel here, and I've been to a lot of churches in my life, again, like I said, but th- this is such a complete church. And the music and the preaching and the community groups. And so you have a closeness with all the, all the people in the church and you learn, you know, things from each other. And so I, I really felt at home. And then, you know, Jesus is such a big part of our life. And, uh, and for all the years that I was going to church, I felt that differently than I do now. And that has a lot to do with the sermons and so forth. So uh, uh, a while back, I, um, I said, well, you know, there's one thing that I'm not doing. And, and I see now that I should do, and that's, that's to tithe. And, uh, and I'm glad I did. And uh, I've always been blessed. God has blessed me beyond belief. Uh, and uh, so I wasn't looking for anything special. I just said, well, to do the things that we do, that costs money. And we're commanded to, you know, preach the good news of the kingdom to all the inhabited earth. And we're doing that. 
And that doesn't come for free. And so I started tithing, and, um, and I'm glad I did because I, I feel like uh, that completes that part of it. Now, I've still got a lot to learn, mm-hmm. and I, I think maybe we all do. But uh, So has it been hard? Has it been good? What's it been like since you've committed to tithing? I, I, it, it, you know, God has always blessed me my mm-hmm. whole life, and um, uh, I feel blessed just to be able to tithe. Yeah. And I, I'm not... I'm not expecting anything. I'm already, I've already gotten. What'd you get? Uh, you know, association with other good Christians. Yeah. That I love, and our the the church process, and trying to make disciples of other people. And you talked and, about the joy of it. You just yeah, don't... yeah, and, and, the, and the joy that comes from that. So mm-hmm. the the money is just not to to me. It's you know I'm I'm just glad I'm able to be able to do it. Yeah. And so that's been a real blessing to me. You also serve on a service team. You're also in a community group. What's your service team position? Well, you know, normally they they do a yearly uh, schedule, and you choose a deal. So I choose the the housekeeping, uh, you know. And so what do you do each week? Well, uh, now this I did a little different. Instead of just doing it for the four or five weeks they ask, I I do it permanently. And of all things, it's taking out the trash. Yeah. And, of course, I prayed on that. I said, well, what can I do every week? to something that would take that burden off of somebody else. Because, uh, you know, well, maybe some people don't want to take out the trash. They, I believe everybody here would if, they, if you needed to take it out. We'd, we'd all take it out. Nobody's but, complaining, though, right? Yeah, nobody's complaining. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody said, come on, let me do that. And I haven't forgot about everybody over here, but, you know, I'm look, kind of looking this way. Yeah, oh, hey, <laughs> don't fall. But anyway... Uh, so so you, you have talked to me every... Let me just put it this way. Ray is the best encourager you'll ever meet. This man loves the Lord Jesus, and this man loves this church. And what I've watched is as the Lord got a hold of his heart and he fell in love deeply with Jesus and with this church, the Lord got his money. We weren't preaching on tithing. We didn't talk about it. God just impacted him. And so that's why I wanted you to hear from Ray because I love this man, and he is a great encouragement. If you're ever down or discouraged, just just walk his way, and I promise you, you're going to leave encouraged. Thank you for sharing that with the church. Thank brother. you, and thank everyone here. I love every one of you. We love you, brother. Thank you. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we just thank you so much for what you've done in Ray's heart. We thank you for bringing about the obedience of faith in his life. What a testimony of humble service out of appreciation for the Lord. May we all be challenged and encouraged to do the same in our lives. Lord, as we look at these texts, uh, again, we ask that we are so captivated by you and your goodness and your grace and your glory that our giving comes from that place, not necessarily from guilt or, or other places, but just from a place of overwhelmed by your incredible love and grace and a desire to see the gospel advance to the ends of the earth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.